Welcome to the Digital Euro Podcast by the Digital Euro Association. In this podcast, you will learn about the disruption of technology in the monetary and financial system. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Digital Euro Podcast. My name is Valentin. I am pleased and honored to be here with Jana Peche. Jana was awarded um, a place on the Women in Fintech Power List 2021 in the Policymakers and Regulatory Experts category. She is policy lead and originating member at the Digital Pound Foundation and director of Markets Evolution, her own consultancy where she specializes in regulatory strategy and financial innovation. Jana, thank you very much for making the time to be here. Thank you very much for having me, Valentin. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Yes, me too. Um, and the topic of today is fungibility and interoperability. The Digital Pound Foundation, a strategic member of the Digital Euro Association, is um, yeah working on this. And I am very eager to learn more about what you think about fun how fungibility and interoperability are connected to each other. Okay, um, <coughs> sorry. So to get started, I think um, uh, I'll talk for a little bit about what interoperability and fungibility are and how they're interrelated. Um, <clears throat> and I think interoperability is a topic that's been quite widely covered um, by both the D Digital Euro Association when we talk about the Digital Euro and also when we talk more broadly about CBDCs and systemically important stable coins worldwide. Um, And most people who are active in the space understand what interoperability means. It's, it's typically in ensuring that all the different payment systems on which different um, forms of money, whether they are um, private or public money today, so um, central bank reserves or um, um, commercial bank money today and in the future CBDCs and potentially stable coins as well, um, making sure all those systems are able to talk to each other at some level and that value is able to be exchanged across them. Um, and at one level, that's, you know, that's actually a fairly technical question. There are different ways that you can implement interoperability and I'm sure we'll get into them a bit. But When we've been talking about interoperability and the future of, of digital money in the Digital Pound Foundation, it, it's, it became clear to us that fungibility is an even more fundamental and necessary prerequisite to having interoperability of digital money in the first instance. And fungibility is a more basic concept. Fungibility means that... Um, The digital euro that um, you use, whether it's regardless of the form that it's in, whether it's in the form of a stable coin or a CBDC, is equal to the value of any other digital euro. Um, and that from a more meaningful, fundamental uh, point of view, they are, they are essentially the same thing. There's no arbitrage potential between the two in, in both value and um most types of legal standing, not all obviously, because one is privately issued and one is publicly issued, but they, 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 
the regulatory frameworks and the legal frameworks in place support all forms of a digital euro in being a digital euro, a euro. And that euro should also be fungible with existing forms of money. So um, cash euros today in the same way that each individual central bank um, of a euro, eurozone member state can issue its own euros um, and its own euro notes. Uh, but they are all fungible with each other. They're also fungible with the commercial bank money that you have today as well. So if I'm transferring money from, um, say, my ABNMO account to, to your um Give me the name of another European bank, retail bank. It's off the top of my head. Um, I, I don't want to say any name. Let, let's just say, say retail bank. Okay, so bank, <laughs> bank A to bank B. So say you and I bank with bank A and bank B. Yeah. And I'm transferring euros from my bank account to your bank account. Now, these aren't branded euros, um, unlike stable coins would be. But behind the scenes, basically, I'm transferring commercial bank A euros to you who is holding commercial bank B euros. And somewhere along the line, these have to be transformed from one form into the other. We don't think about that. You know, this all happens seamlessly behind the scenes. Um, and part of that is due to the fungibility that is enabled by the regulatory regime in place. And part of this is due to the interoperability of the systems of those banks and the settlement mechanisms between them. And that's what we need to achieve in the world of digital money for the digital euro, the digital pound, etc., as we move forward. You are making uh, both of my hearts beat, um, the monetary economist heart and the developer heart. Um, would it make sense to differentiate? So fungibility actually is the, the monetary economics part of a CBDC and interoperability is the um, technical part. Would you agree? I, I Yes, I think um, that's a good way of thinking about it. The only thing that I'd add to that really is that fungibility doesn't only apply to a CBDC, it applies to a digital euro in any form or a digital pound in any form. So If we have classes of systemically important stable coins that we want to be considered as digital euros or digital pounds, then in order to avoid the creation of walled gardens and silos, those are going to have to be fungible with each other in the same way that different commercial banks' money is today, and also with the central bank digital currency as well. Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, my category was a little bit too narrow. Obviously, it counts for every digital, yeah, maybe even every digital currency. And you talked about our fiat system where basically like bank A and bank B <laughs> issue the um, euro or pound. Um, What do you what do you think? What can we, what can we learn from the current banking system? And um, what maybe there are things that we don't want to copy if we move into a digital space and what are the what are the pit pit pitchfalls what would make fungibility um complicated between um digital euros or digital pounds so that's a really good question and i think there's a lot that we can learn from the existing um the existing financial system and how 
how what 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 makes it possible that we don't even think about this right now it's only in the context of the future of digital money that we're starting to explore these questions and open up these incredibly complicated concepts when you start diving into them um and it, it is really useful and instructive to go back in time and to think about how our commercial banking system evolved and how, how its relationship with central banking system and with regulators evol evolved as well over time. I mean, if you go back to, you know, the, the, the Middle Ages, uh, that kind of period and, and the emergence of privately issued banknotes, um, back then different banks would issue their individual banknotes. Um, and these represented a claim in the individual bank. And, you know, there are stories from all around the world of, you know, different kind of scam artist banks, at, uh, you know, hundreds of years ago that would, um, that would print more notes and have more notes outstanding in circulation than they actually held in reserves. And so, obviously, over time, it became clear that there are two challenges here. First of all, you can't trust, you couldn't trust these individual banks. There needed to be some control to ensure that actually what they said was a pound or a dollar or whatever it was at the time actually represented that value. And secondly, um, uh, sorry, and that the user, the consumer or the business that was using it could actually go to the commercial bank and redeem that with them. And, you know, that they could actually draw out something that was central bank money or something, you know, or, um, or hold that kind of credit in their account, that that note stood for something real. And the second was that there was some way of, pinning the value to the, the central bank money in circulation, that a pound or a dollar or whatever, no matter which bank it was issued by, actually meant the same thing and had the same value as the, the, the money that a central bank printed or the, the money that a central bank held in its reserves. And so how, do, how did we go about that? How did that happen? Um, well, a lot of the, the, the regulation that commercial banks are subject to um, was developed in order to basically um, ensure that that applied in, in law um, and that the operations of the commercial banks, the reserves that they held, the relationships that they had with the central banks, the, the mechanisms for settlement between each other and things like that, all supported ultimately that fungibility of the thing that we think about as a pound or a dollar or now euro um, and that basically you and I have never had to think about that up, uh, up until now. It's, it's been that effective. Um, and so when we look forward to the future of digital money, these are the same questions that we need to, to ask ourselves. What is the regulatory regime and the legal framework that needs to be in place to ensure that, um, that, this is, that this situation remains the same in the future um, in the world of digital money? Jana, you just said a very interesting point. Regulation is there to support fungibility and fungibility enables economic activity for businesses and consumers. So fungibility is indeed very important. So the next question is kind of obvious, right? Like, how can we make sure that a digital euro or a digital pound is fungible? <laughs> I think going back to to 
you know, what I was saying about the, the history of commercial bank money, um, we can take the lessons that we've learned from, from that journey and that experience and apply them to the new world of um, digital money. And indeed, that's, that is what, what's happening in, um, in some jurisdictions. So if we, if we think about the, the new categorization of systemically important stable coins um, that um, both Mika as well as um, the, the, the UK um, regulatory um, regime recognize, um, it's these systemically important stable coins that I think will ultimately become the equivalence of commercial bank money as we have it now. Um, and possibly some forms of e-money as well, depending on the, on the extent to which they're, they're used um, in practice. So by creating, a, by, by, by creating a regulatory regime that in effect puts the issuers of these systemically important stable coins, these other forms of the digital pound and the digital euro, um, on a similar footing to the issuers of commercial bank money, then we start to implement this fungibility across the different forms of, of money. And that's really important. There are some key differences. We can't just transpose the existing banking regime to the issuer of every systemically important stablecoin because that's not that's not really practical. And I think it also stifles a lot of potential for innovation. It's not about taking our existing financial system and just extending it to cover more things. It's figuring out what a future financial system can look like that will allow us to realize the benefits of these new forms of digital money, whilst also ensuring that they can meet the objectives of fungibility, that um, they meet the other wider regulatory objectives of, the, of consumer protection and market integrity and things like that. So in the US, for example, there's been discussion of... Um, of, of restricting um, the issue of stable coins to um, banking institutions. I don't think that's the right way to go about this. Um, the UK had a very interesting, um, so the Bank of England published a very interesting discussion paper on new forms of digital money um, in 2021. And it, it's, it was really interesting in that it explored the different ways in which um, a um, a stablecoin issuer could be adequately potentially regulated and the different models for backing that stablecoin to ensure um, that it met the objectives of consumer protection and market, st uh, market stability. It didn't really go into fungibility that much, but I think fungibility is going to be a topic that's explored to a greater extent in future. And the other key difference between... Um, current forms of um, privately issued money, so commercial bank money, and the future of digital um, money, um, the private digital euro and the private digital pound, is that um, given their digital nature, they offer different functionality to the money we have today. So in a sense, all commercial bank money is kind of the same because at its core, each different type of money isn't doing anything wildly different from another type of money. So bank A's money, you, you can't necessarily do things with it that you could do that you couldn't do with bank B's money. Um, 
Now, different banks might offer different levels of services on top of that, but to be honest, all those services are kind of similar anyway. When we look at digital money, though, and how different stablecoins could be designed, they could be designed from the ground up to support different functionality um, inherently. Um, so we could have some stable coins that are programmable, um, even within the category of programmable stable coins. Some of them might be programmable or offer um, APIs that, that themselves support different functionality. Um, we might have some stable coins that um, support certain types of payments or certain types of transactions or um, collect different degrees of metadata or data on users and share that in different ways and things like that. And so especially when you potentially have a universe of different stable coins, you've got, you know, Amazon coins and Facebook coins and things like that. And all of these have their own kind of digital dollar or digital euro Again, if your objective is to make sure that there's open access to all of these and that walled gardens are not created, then it's really important to try and figure out how, despite these different characteristics and these different functionalities, you can still ensure fungibility. And, um, and that's potentially quite a challenging one. Yes. How, how could we ensure they're fungible? So I... like. One concept is to regulate issuers of stablecoins as a network bank. This would effectively mean they would have a, a 100% backing of um, a central bank money. Right now, if we have a packed stablecoin and uh, the stablecoin has a reserve, um, it, it, it's most of the time um, got high quality liquid assets or it's just like fiat money. What, what options do we have to regulate stablecoin issuers uh, as a form of private money, uh, private digital money, um, to make sure um, they are fungible and because we need fungibility to make sure that they're stable in value, right? That they are actual stable coins. What, what options mm -hmm. do we see? Um, sorry. Um, again, I think, you know, we, we always have to look back to the existing model. I know there's a tendency for people to just, you know, think on, on, on one side, people who are very active in the digital money space tend to think, well, there's nothing really that we can le learn from the existing system. It doesn't really work for us. So let's just tear it up and look, let's create something new. Whereas people on the existing side, on the other hand, can be overly cautious when they look at new forms of digital money um, and overly prescriptive as well. And I think, it, you know, if we, if we look at um, what commercial bank money is right now, um, commercial bank money is not fully backed 100% by reserves held at a central bank. It's not even fully backed 100% by deposits held at the commercial bank. Um, it's, it's backed by deposits and loans. And so I think if we, if we look ahead to the future of digital money, um, 
it's not necessary to say that the issuer uh, of a of a privately issued systemically important stablecoin must hold 100% in central bank reserves. It's possibly a model that could be supported and encouraged, and um, it would be a, a very direct model. I mean, arguably, you could be talking about a synthetic CBDC, essentially, with that kind of model. But... Um, but you could it could also support other models um for prudential regulation that don't require that that don't introduce additional risk above and beyond the risk that currently exists in the commercial bank system today and that could be a mixture of high quality liquid assets um or hqla and deposits and uh, reserves held with the central bank. It, it could be any combination of those things. What you need to look at overall is the overall prudential risk that's associated with that issuer and therefore with the stable coin that they issue. And that's a more holistic way of regulating it. And very importantly, it adheres to the same risk, same regulation principle. Of if something has the same risk as something else, you regulate it in the same way. We shouldn't be treating the issuers of stable coins as though somehow they must be held to a higher account than even our commercial banks are today, I think. Um, that That's anti-competitive and, and it, it doesn't create a, a, an environment for innovation either. Um, so I can't see the future and, and what exactly that would look like, um, but I think it's really important to take into account um, various different models and the individual risks associated with them. And ultimately what you want, you know, the outcome that you want is the most important thing. The outcome is fungibility. And fungibility is a, more fundamentally than anything else. It's about the amount of trust that people put in each stable coin and in a CBDC and in all the other forms of money that exist in a given jurisdiction. Basically, the trust level in all of them has to be the same. Otherwise, there's potential for arbitrage because if there's a lower level of trust in one, then you know it could be priced in to the, the, the way that it's exchanged or the way that it's valued and things like that. And that's what you don't want. So ultimately, you want the same level of trust. And that's the regulatory goal, to create the same level of trust. That's a very nice end statement. Um because I would love to talk a little bit more about interoperability. Fungibility is trust. Um, I'm in, uh, very excited. I think fungibility will actually be a part of the digital currency discussion because I totally agree with your analysis that it's uh, very important. And yeah, we, we talked a lot about stable coins and um, I want to highlight that you said stablecoins should not be regulated in a more harsh and more critical way than banks, which is a very uh, interesting and important statement. And when we talk about stablecoins, we obviously think about USDC or USDT and all this blockchain stablecoins, but we all know that a digital currency or maybe even a CBDC is does not necessarily have to live on a blockchain um and interoperability is yeah has like all this like d different dimensions the interoperability with existing payment systems interoperability with other cbdc's and as a 
blockchain native, um, you're often prone to think that blockchain is the one solution for everything. But um, obviously, there's never one solution for everything. So let, let's talk about interoperability and a little bit about um, yeah di different technologies. Like may, maybe let's start with, with like what, this two dimension of like interoperability with the existing payment system and with other CBDCs. What 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 do you think? Like in, in which direction um, do you have the discussion at, at the um, Digital Pound Foundation, Jana? Um, so that's a great question and a great way of starting it off. Um, and I think even for people who, who talk about interoperability, uh, um, you know, often it's, it's quite common for us to inherently have higher expectations of interoperability when it comes to digital money um, than we do at the moment. And it's important to remember that actually we don't have money that's interoperable by design right now. Like every individual jurisdiction's Domestic payment systems were largely developed in isolation. Um, domestic money is largely developed in isolation, etc. The the drivers of interoperability between those jurisdictions have been um, private initiatives, like um, the the SWIFT um, network, for example, for um, for cross border and interbank settlements. Um, and domestic infrastructure such as RTGS for enabling interoperability between different commercial banks' own money and central bank money and things like that. And so we already have money that's not interoperable by design. It relies on systems to create that interoperability. And when we look to the future of digital money, that's one way that that can be implemented. So yes, we need that kind of interoperability um, on a domestic level. And again, you know, if you've got a digital pound or a digital euro and different forms of that, and you've also got commercial bank money, um, at, and, and they're all kind of in existence at the same time, you need to ensure, again, that not only are they all fungible, so they all stand for the same, they all represent the same value and consumers can have the same level of trust in them, but there's also the technical interoperability capability between them so that you can move between one form and another. And there are lots of different ways you can do that technically. So again, you can have that through um, third-party systems. You can have the, you can implement it through um, exposing APIs that um, are kind of interoperable at that level, although that potentially requires some kind of open banking standards um, to be in place. Um, but from a technical perspective, there, there are different ways you can do that. Um, the other type of interoperability, as you mentioned, is then when you look cross-border, um, interoperability between one country's money and another country's money. And again, really important to remember that that doesn't exist today. We have mechanisms in place to bridge those gaps, um, again, like the SWIFT network, but we, the, in and of themselves, that money is not interoperable by design and we don't necessarily need two cbdc's to be fully interoperable we neck we we need a mechanism for different cbdc's or potentially different privately issued stable coins to interoperate if we are to realize 
the benefits of digital money in cross-border settlement use cases and if we want to be able to you know efficiently um, transmit money from one jurisdiction to another but that's different to saying it must be interoperable by design if that makes sense it does so interoperability is a very important category of thinking when we think about wholesale cbdc's which try to bridge the gap between um, domestic payment infrastructure jurisdictions and yeah other countries and like to, to match it and swift is a mechanism we all know right now uh, by name but most people don't actually know how it works even if we didn't know, even even if we didn't know it before most people are now more yes aware. <laughs> yes and swift is just a messaging system like at the end of the day there's no magic about it it doesn't magically transform one form of money into another um, or one currency into another it's it sends messages to banks around the world to basically you know tell them to move money from one account into another that's all it does and uh, isn't it amazing that we needed the push from blockchain technology to actually think about digitali uh, digitizing or digitalizing um, or make, make sorry, missing the vocabulary here, um, our banking system and how these very important financial institutes that serve this financial infrastructure actually communicate with each other? Um, it, is, it is really interesting and, and the kind of the, the drivers from the DLT and blockchain sector um, have have been significant, um, but it's important to remember again that it's you know digital money doesn't have to exist in a distributed ledger or a blockchain, and China CBDC, for example, um, isn't built on on a DLT. Um, but there, there are there are you know technical and design benefits to doing it, such as potential to have programmable money, but it's not a prerequisite. I think I, 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 I think agree. going back to your question, what you know, one of the key things that's driven the exploration of um, CBDCs and stablecoins that are built on um, DLT and blockchain is when we look at the use cases for cryptocurrency now, um, and the way that you know some companies use. Um, cryptocurrencies to move value more efficiently both domestically uh, you know between users or cross-border as well and so it's looking at that and thinking oh we can create better financial networks using this type of technology as that's kind of been a big driver there and indeed if we look at an interoperable future um you know with cross-border interoperability between different jurisdictions um cbdc's or, or forms of digital money um you know, you could go for a more traditional approach where actually you could just extend the SWIFT network to send, you know, messages across it about um, CBDC transactions, or you could potentially use another um, cryptocurrency as a kind of um, bridging currency between the two. So in the same ways that they're used to send value across um, different jurisdictions today, you could potentially do something like that on a larger scale in future. So I think it's you know there there could be a fair degree of um, learning from um, the innovations that that blockchain induced in the future. Mm, so 
we still have this trade off between um, technology and uh, like um, what we call trustless technology on a blockchain and or the um, intermediaries and maybe this is also a political question right because maybe we want to have a intermediate intermediary that we like kind of trust for example that is like more or less democratically leg legitimized and um, that is actually like dealing with a global um yeah global monetary system because um if if everything just purely lives on technology i just wonder where this monetary sovereignty of um, states is like what would currencies be um but like you mean if it all moved towards private issuers and absolutely cryptocurrency absolutely yeah. like I... yeah what if what if what if like imagine a future where we where we don't have like a pound or like a euro but yeah but like a stable currency that is like not bound to a jurisdiction like like do you do, do you that, think about this currency question will we one day have a global independent currency um i mean i think there's there's a lot of challenges to overcome um you know i think it, it it it's a political question as well and for a lot of people it depends on their personal views it depends on where you think the world is going in terms of how how much more it's integrating versus how much more individual sovereignty means as long as countries are you know distinct economic driver for central banks at the moment to explore cbdc's for example because they're afraid of losing this control over their monetary sovereignty but um you know in parts of the world where we have moved to greater regional um integration and greater political and economic unity like the eurozone um you know we we have seen the introduction of of common currencies and it's all about how you can extend that over a, a larger scale because there's two ways it can go really either you have this greater degree of political and economic you know unity that leads to the introduction of more regional currencies but those are remain essentially fiat currencies or you have greater fragmentation and segmentation and therefore individual users so businesses and consumers looking for a neutral way that they can transact and that might push people more towards using um, cryptocurrency instead which would conversely lead to a reduction of monetary sovereignty and would lead to a very different world so those are two really different kind of longer term outcomes for the world i think <laughs> yes this is this is a this is a great space to be in you know it's it's all about the big questions isn't it yeah <laughs> so the discussion is not over yet uh it's it stays interesting <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah yeah. Yeah, in the end you just land there, right? It's, um, it's very interesting and yeah, it opens up a lot of um of mind space to actually think about the future and to think about what um yeah, what's actually happening. Um we have to add this discussion now. Maybe this was a a nice opener for the audience to yeah, think 
think about um, what um, CBDCs or digital currencies actually mean in this world. I'm very, very grateful again for these two concepts that um, help me structure my thinking about digital currencies, um, fungibility and interoperability. And I'm also very grateful for your time, Jana. Um, maybe as a last statement, like where should people find you if they would like to contact you, invite you as a speaker, or maybe get a consultancy of your um, your company, uh, Markets Evolution? Um, the easiest way to find me is just on LinkedIn, um, Jana Pache. There's, there's only one of me so that's pretty easy to yeah. find um and um yes thank you for having me today valentin this was a really interesting conversation um and i'd love to follow up on some of the big concepts that you introduced at the end on you know the future of money in the world and things like that sometime yes um it's it's the big questions and uh, it's um the narrow concepts that actually have help us move and i'm um, again very grateful for this conversation jana it was a pleasure to have you here and, Thank you. And I wish uh, our audience a great day. This was the Digital Euro podcast.